Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening. It's the, I guess, day or week of feeling like a Luddite for me. Oh, no. What happened? What, tell me about your Luddite problems. Well, so I got, I was doing an Amazon return, right? And I did the return online. But as uh, many people know, I don't carry my phone with me. So I got to the return place and I didn't have my phone. And I was like, oh, well, I'm here. I might as well go in and ask. And so I, I get this young teenager, young teenage girl, and she's like, uh, so do you have your phone? And I was like, no, I don't have my phone. Is there any way to look it up? She's like, well, we don't have any Amazon equipment here. And I was like, oh, okay. She's like, I don't know if your phone's in your car or something. You can go get it. I was like, no, I don't have a phone. And she's like, well, if you just had the phone, you'd like the app on the phone. And I was like, <laughs> I don't have a phone. And, and, and I was just like, she just couldn't conceptualize the fact that I just don't carry a phone around with me. And I, I wanted to say, I carry a flip phone and I can't do this anyways, just to see what she would, how she would would react to that situation like it or not that is the direction our society is going and here's the thing i'm not quite to your status to where i like for me the convenience of not having my package shipped like that's that's where i start like i want to leverage the technology to benefit me so to the extent that i can do that and preserve my privacy i'm interested in doing that but at the end of the day like i want to get some of this stuff done but where i agree with you on and where i would where i will stand shoulder by shoulder with you as we march this battle together is the world is going to start to expect us to be tethered to a smartphone phone and if you don't have a smartphone you're not going to go to a concert you're not going to renew your thing you're not going to get on buses you're not going to do you know transit passes and all all the thing or apparently return a amazon packages all of these things the expectation is that you're going to have a phone i was sitting in an indian restaurant when i was at scale in california and i went to get up and pay and i went to the cash register with my card to go pay and the guy just like taps at this qr code on the counter as to as if to tell me like take your phone out take a picture of it and check yourself out and i I don't know. Like, I, I just, I will not participate in that. I don't want to be tethered to a phone any more than you do. I absolutely will not, especially with the restaurants. I insist they bring me a menu and I absolutely <laughs> will not use the phone to do that. But yeah, so it's just, it's been one of those days. So I went back and I was grousing the whole way. I don't want to use my phone, blah, blah, blah. So I printed the <laughs> QR code. <laughs> uh, I didn't get, even though I was only gone... <laughs> Even though I was only gone 20 minutes, I didn't get the same person. So I, I was just imagining the conversation. That's like, such a shame. Here's the I, thing. Here would have been the funniest. I'm picturing this, this, this conversation she's having in her brain with like, so I am unfortunately born in the millennial generation, but I just picturing because the, the age difference between her and I is so great. She's probably being like, okay, boomer in her mm-hmm. brain when she sees me. <laughs> so here, you know what the, the, the icing on the cake, Steve? Would have been if you have somebody like me who likes to stir the pot a little bit. And, and, and so, and, and if I could have gone in there with you and said something, struck up a conversation about your day job, 
Like I, I don't know. It's just it'd be really, really funny. I, I don't know. It's just I'm, I'm amused by simple things. Anyway, I'm sorry for your lot of experiences. I hope I, I, I deeply appreciate the fact that you printed a QR code and went. I think that's just adorable and fantastic. But I, I hope you have better luck in the future returning Amazon packages. And like I say, I'm your brother in arms. When it comes to, we're going to defend ourselves against the tyranny of being forced to carry a phone. We just we won't stand for it. I will I will I will absolutely drug my laptop with me into restaurants again. I know this is where we differ in our in our process, but I'm with you. You shouldn't be married to a phone. You know what'd been hilarious if mm. I had a been like oh wait i've got my laptop in the car here scan this you joke but <laughs> anybody that's been to a linux conference has watched me do that i my laptop goes everywhere with me into restaurants even when we're not in the restaurant for very long and people find it kind of obnoxious i don't care and when i am in situations where it's socially unacceptable to have a real laptop i have my gpd pocket too and i have a micro laptop so i can still have a laptop even when i'm not supposed to have a laptop love it all right let's do feedback our first feedback comes in from I have to get back. Norm. Norm. Norm writes in and says, Hey, Noah and Steve, hoping you both are taking some time off from your busy schedules to spend time with the family. I have a question about VLANs and access. Right now, I have an extremely flat network. I have access to SSH into my media or file servers from my phone or computer on the network. I'd like to be able to protect those servers. Usually, I'm SSHing into my daily driver, but there are occasions that I'm doing it from my phone phone is faster and it's more convenient or because my options because or my only option because I'm not home. I think of my phone kind of as an IoT device and I'd start to like treating it like one on my network. Seems like the most logical option so far is putting these devices on a VLAN and setting the rules to block access except for a single random other port for SSH or by only allowing access for my phone as my daily driver. I'd like your both perspective on this. Am I missing something to make sure that this is secure? What do you both do in these situations? Thanks again for a great show. Hoping our kids' schedule lets up as soon as I can so I can call in and start joining the show live. Keep up the great work. So, Steve, what would you do if you woke up in in uh, Norm's shoes? I don't isolate our phones, um, largely because there's a, a lot of routing rules that I'd have to put in place that would, if I missed something, would decrease the spousal uh, acceptance factor on that one quite a bit. So... The phones just go on the regular VLAN with everything else. Although I do have an IoT, an IoT VLAN as well as two other VLANs, one for guests and one for just like management stuff. So I absolutely do the VLAN stuff. I just don't treat the phone as hostily as that, ironically. 855-450-6624. That's 855-450-6624. The number to join us. Uh, Harry joins us from Grand Forks. Welcome in. Oh no! This is the this is the downside. Is Gary? Do I have you? I see Gary talking, but I can't hear Gary. I'm I'm really sorry about this. So the problem, Gary, if you can hear me, is we we're having this issue with our phones. When we get our new board back, I'll be able to take your phone and and answer the question. In the meantime. I hate to do this as I've asked for live interaction, but if you can send for, for the next few weeks, send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. We'll absolutely answer your uh, home assistant question. And actually, let me try this, Gary. I'll, I'll try and get you on. It'll, it'll be a little bit weird. It'll be a little bit different, but I think we can actually make this work. So uh, let's try this. Gary, I think I have you on the air. Go ahead. Go ahead, Gary. Harry. 
Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I had a question. I have a computer set up with my Home Assistant dashboard, so I can kind of see at a moment's glance what's going on around my house. I want to put a uh, like some sort of plug-in or something to watch like an online news broadcast, but I can't find anything at Home Assistant. Is there a way that I can set up like a picture-in-picture system for my computer so that I can pipe in a, a an online news broadcast and have that overlaid on top of Home Assistant? Steve, what do you think? Is there is well, there... So, so Firefox has the picture-in-picture thing when you're playing a video. You absolutely can pop that out in Firefox. Um, if you, as long as you're not talking about wanting to try and embed that stream into your home assistant, which some people do try to bring in external sources. But, um, the first thing I would do would be try to try with Firefox, because like I said, um, it, if it detects the video, it will give you a little button to pop it out. And then you can absolutely just, uh, switch tabs or whatever. I do that all the time. Does that answer your question a little bit, Eric? Yeah, that, uh, I didn't even think about that. That's a good idea. All right. Hey, we appreciate the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. A little bit of troubleshooting on the fly. Um, so uh, getting back to Norm here for, for a little bit. If So uh, uh, what we, we've typically done when we have people that want to have a public side and a private side is we'll separate them out. So... Small business, it happens all the time, and they'll have employees that they want access to certain things on their devices. They don't necessarily want them on the corporate network. And so what I would do, I would have two networks, two VLANs. Your your one VLAN, let's call it VLAN 10, is your, actually I'd have three. 10 is your administrative VLAN. It's where you live and where all of your very trusted equipment lives. Anything that you install, you put it on 10. We'll call 20 the guest VLAN, and that really just has access to the internet. Then we will typically put in what we call the critical VLAN. Critical VLAN is where all of the network services live. So servers and, and, and stuff that you might want to touch and you might want to allow most access to 10, but not have everything. Maybe there's some management interfaces or, you know, IPMI stuff that you don't, the re- even your rest of your family doesn't need access to that. And so you'll you'll keep those all separate. N- then once you ha- are at that point, you can do one of two things. So what you're suggesting, hey, make some firewall rules and allow traffic. Absolutely. That will work. You can do that. And that works just fine. The other thing that you can do, and we absolutely have clients that do this where they have you know, where it's a BYOB thing, where the where the employee is bringing their device, but they don't want them necessarily connecting to the, the corporate Wi-Fi. What you can do is just even on the on the public Internet side, VPN back in. And that will allow you to do things like, hey, for the most part, 99 percent of the time, my phone lives on Internet land because really it's not a trusted device. And I just want it to get to the Internet and do its thing. But every once in a great while, I need to SSH into the server or I'm away from the home and I need to SSH into the server. Connecting via OpenVPN or whatever you want to use to get back into your network allows you to establish a secure connection from your device back to the network, and then it's connected for as long as it needs to do the thing, and then you can disconnect when you're done. So those might be some options for you to uh, to kick around. But I tell you what, I'd be interested to hear back from you. What do you like about what we've told you? Where are still some questions? And if you've listened to Norm's question and you're thinking to yourself, no, no, and Steve, I would do this in an entirely different way, then we want you to write in live at asknoahshow.com. 
and we'll get that information back to Norm as well as in our own noggins. JJ4884 in the in the chat room asks Marlon, and Marlon relays to us tonight. He remembers having an X1 uh, that I had an X1 Carbon, and he asks, "Did you have to install any extra drivers to make it work properly under Linux?" I've been using OpenSUSE Tumbleweed on an X1 7th gen that I got recently, and it seems to have some paper cuts regarding Bluetooth from the Intel 9560 Jefferson Lake chip, as well as the audio sounding as if it were underwater. So my X1 was hot garbage out of the box with Linux. And now mine is a sixth gen, so maybe there is a difference between generations. But at first I was very disappointed because everything that I had had up until that point worked flawlessly with Linux. But the answer was really simple. Inside of the UEFI, when I rebooted, there was an option inside of the BIOS UEFI that said operating system, and it was chosen to Windows. And under Windows, standby didn't work right. I did have problems with Wi-Fi. It did have problems with Bluetooth. I also recall having something weird with the display. I changed that to Linux, and everything. it was like the computer was born to run Linux again. And so, just like every other ThinkPad I've ever had. And so, installed my uh, my you know, my, my chosen distro and, and went about my day. So I would highly suggest going into the UEFI and, and checking it there. Steve, have you seen anything in the way of uh, ThinkPads not behaving properly with Linux? Because the only ThinkPads that I have contact with are the ones that come from Red Hat, I'm going to have to say no. The Those Red are Hat X1s, IT aren't they? Sure. What's that? Those are X1s. They are, or they can be. We get a choice. But because of that, you know, Red Hat IT make sure that they work before they ship them out to us. Mm. So, so presumably it should work under Linux if you know. And Google's doing the same thing. Their their standard issue is uh, an X1 with Linux. So I have to believe that Linux likely works. And perhaps maybe it's just a setting that uh, you can toggle or take a look at in the UEFI. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the week in review with JT for the week of August sixth. 2023, here's Linux and open source news. Asahi Linux's new flagship distro for the M series Max is a Fedora Remix. Rhino Linux has released version 1.0. Zorin OS 16.3 is now available. Nitrix 2.9.1 has been released. And Microsoft's CBL Mariner 2.0 Linux distribution adds Clippy. NVK, the open source Vulkan driver for NVIDIA, has been merged into Mesa. In hardware news, the Core 5 MCU Dev Kit is a new RISC-V open-source hardware board that offers wireless connectivity to Amazon AWS through an ESP32C3 AWS IoT ExpressLink module, and it also has a microbus connector for expansion, a VGA camera module, JTAG and serial debugging, as well as a temperature sensor and a few buttons. In security news, threat actors are using an open-source rootkit called Reptile to target Linux systems in South Korea. Unlike other rootkit malware that typically only provides concealment capabilities, Reptile goes a step further by offering a reverse shell, allowing threat actors to easily take control of systems. And in open source AI news, IBM and NASA have open sourced the largest geospatial AI foundation model on Hug and Face. This week, I spent some serious time rebuilding my home assistant. So, Steve, have you ever had something that you brought into your home not to be used for production it is purely a dev thing so your wife doesn't depend on it your kids don't depend on it. your family doesn't depend on it. you don't even depend on it you know it's going to fail because you're going to try to make it fail because you're just devving on it and it's not in production i want to be very clear about that it's not in production i plan to put everything that i bring into production so 
Okay. Well, that's an well that that is not. I, I have plenty of stuff that makes it into my house, and I'm like, well, that would never make it into production. So, Home Assistant started kind of that way. It wasn't that I was never going to put it into production. It's just that that wasn't the production instance. It was just the development instance. It was the thing I was just going to play with and just kind of see what was working. And um, well, what can I say? Sometimes it it ended up being a lot more useful than I had originally thought. So. When you look at home designing home automation, and I've been working with this as as a hobby since like 1998, 1999, since I found my first X10 kit at Radio Shack for $99 and found that with a serial cable, I could send serial commands from my computer and turn the lights on and off. And I thought that was about the coolest thing ever. And I was hooked. So early on, there were three different there were. Well, yeah, three different ways that you could automate around. One was around security systems. So security systems had automation that you could build in and around them and close contacts to do that. Lights, lighting systems. And at the time, they were just generic home controllers. They were big, dedicated boxes that ran proprietary garbage software that were really no fun to play with, or they were incredibly expensive. And so I early on kind of chose to automate around lights and I started with X10. But what ended up happening was I had so many bad experiences by way of my wife would walk into a room and she would press the button to make the light come on and it wouldn't work because it was a remote switch and the RF signal would get dropped or something got lost or the channel was something happened and it didn't work. And eventually she had a conversation with me that basically said, you will either make this work or we will go back to having regular toggle light switches. And by the way, the reliability that you're aiming for, if you need some help with this, you just match the toggle light switches. Every time I flip the switch, the light comes on. When I flip it the other way, the light goes off. And as long as I have the light switch flipped up, it stays on. And you will respect, you find a way to make your thing do that. And I was like, ah, okay, got it. So I did some digging and I talked to a couple of other friends of mine that were in the industry and Got rec- I got a recommendation for the Lutron Radio Raw system, and I bought it, and it was fantastic. It did all of the things that X10 did, except it had like a really rudimentary web interface that I could play with, and it, I was really happy with it. No software required. It was just what you might call aerobic programming. You just tap buttons and, and learn them, and it worked great. And the, the key to Radio Raw's success and reliability was they made their they have their own RF system built into very high quality dimmers. Lutron's been making dimmers for decades. And so the, the these generation with with RF in them talk to a central controller and that central controller then communicates around. And when you get out of the range of one central controller, you get additional ones and they all pick it up. And then the controllers, uh, at least latest generation ones, are are network hardwired back into the system. And so I bought that system. I've. In, I've been using it since 2007, eight, whenever it came out, literally never had, I've not had a single instance where a dimmer didn't work or a button didn't work. And my wife has been hundred percent happy. So I have the spousal approval factor working in my favor. And because of that, I've just kind of upgraded ever since. And so now they, I have the, the radio raw two system in my house and it's been working fine. Home assistant came into my life at a time where everything was working on its own. I had Volumeo, worked fine, didn't want to replace it. I had Radio Raw 2, it worked fine, didn't want to replace it. So I wasn't really looking for a home automation solution. I mostly had all of the automation that I was looking for. And oh, by the way, as part of doing the Lutron Radio Raw system, you to get their software to use the latest, uh, the, the, the second generation, you have to sit through this training course. It's free, it doesn't cost any money, but... I didn't like the idea that A, it's proprietary software and B, it's behind this training course. But I got a lot of really interesting things out of that training course. One of the things being they teach you how to automate 
for like normal people, like the people that are our families. And a part of that is learning not to try to anticipate what people's expectations or, or wants are going to be because they might change in the moment. How you want the light set today might be different from how you want them tomorrow. So having the ability to kind of dig in and change those things uh, and sit through that course, I actually found that really helpful. So I, I, I took those skills and used that to design the lighting system that we have in our house that we've been using for 10 years and been very happy with. Well, up until now, Home Assistant has just kind of hung off the edge. And then I plugged Home Assistant in, and what do you know, Volumio just worked. And Radio Raw 2 just worked. And all of these things that I had, largely because most of them were open source, or in the case of Lutron, open protocol, they just worked with Home Assistant. And over time, Home Assistant, how do I say this? Some accidentally promoted itself into production. It just, it's gotten to the point where I can't live without it. So... I had some time this weekend and I thought I need to go dig into the, you know, first or second generation Raspberry Pi that I've haphazardly thrown Home Assistant on and have some god old version that I haven't really touched in five years since I've put it in because now we, we use it. We like it. I'm, I'm, I'm sold. I want it. I want it. In fact, I want it so much I want it to become the new heart of my system. And so. I started by just going through the upgrade process. Now, I'm embarrassed to tell you what version I started at, but I will tell you that 45 minutes later, it did every one of those upgrades to the latest version of Home Assistant flawlessly. Didn't lose any data, didn't lose any scenes, didn't lose any control. Everything was perfect. But after I got to the end of it, I'm like, okay, if this was going to be the new starting point, how would I do things from the ground up? And so I ended up blowing away my all of my Lutron scenes and I rebuilt them in Home Assistant. Then to tie back in the existing scene controllers, I came up with what I thought was a fairly clever hack. So Lutron has these scene controllers, which essentially they're like five button or seven button things that look like normal dimmers, but they have buttons in the wall. And so they're very approachable. Now, if you've ever been to a conference center, if you've ever been to an event center, you've likely seen the graphic eye controller on the wall. And I'll have a picture or a link for you in the show notes, a picture of what one looks like so you can recognize it. You can see what I'm talking about. But they have smaller versions that go in residential houses. And so they're very approachable to normal people that walk up to a light and go on which button do i push and you can kind of see there the scenes are all laid out so i wanted to retain that functionality but i wanted it all to be based on home assistant and so instead of having the radio raw 2 controller do all of the light scenes i rebuilt all of the scenes inside of home assistant then i had to overcome this scene controller thing because that was talking to the radio raw controller and making the scene changes to the lights so i just added a, a spare dimmer and created like a phantom dimmer and just set the dim percentages one through seven for each one of the light, which for each one of the buttons and then told home assistant to watch that scene selector. So now we have the same functionality that you can walk up and just push the scene button and all of the lights in the house change. The only downside I have noticed to home assistant since promoting it to the heart of my, my home is with the Lutron proprietary protocol. When you push the scene button, it was instantaneous and every light, if there was 30 of them, all 30 of them would come on instantaneously with home assistant. It's, you know, one comes on, a couple more come on, three comes on, four, five, six, seven, and you can just kind of see it process through as opposed to just everything happens instantaneously as if it was a hardwired switch. So, but it's, it's taller. I mean, it works and it, it so far hasn't missed anything. So my, I, I'm left with these questions. The first is what is the best dimmer for reliability with home assistant? Lutron has made their, I think they call it the Mastro series, which is kind of their foray into we're not going to put all this stuff behind a paywall and, uh, you know, special software and training and installers. We're going to open it up to the public because, frankly, the friction point is too high there and people will just step around it. 
My second question is, what should I be running Hasio on? So it's going to get a promotion from the crappy old pie that Noah had laying around into something dedicated. Now, my choices are I could go with a single board computer, which kind of mimics what the commercial offerings for home automation controllers or other types of controllers are. It's a single board computer with a particular operating system on it. I could go a VM or a VM with a container. I already have a V host at my house. Wouldn't be terribly hard. In fact, that's my natural inclination is just stock it there. But it runs such a vital thing. And again, we don't have a high tolerance or failure here. So then I get into maybe I should have like a dedicated PC or a dedicated PC with a VM or a container. Now, if I remember right, Steve, that's the way that you're hosting Home Assistant. You have a dedicated Nook. And so it's a computer, but then it's running a VM with Home Assistant on it. Yep, that's correct. That I found that to be the most portable way for me because although I, I have come to trust the Home Assistant backups. Mm -hmm. There was a time where I would just prefer to be able to pick up the VM image and plunk it somewhere else should I need to be able to do that. And so ultimately that's the, it's a legacy thing at this point. Uh, I probably would continue to do it this way in the future, but the, the, really the backups have been completely solid right now. What I do is that because I trust them so much, I have two VMs. One of them's just turned off (laughs) when I'm doing my, when I'm doing my testing, I just pick up the backup from the live system and drop it on the other one where I can isolate its network so it doesn't actually get out to go mm-hmm. do all the things. Um, I've had some unexpected consequences of that before where I turned on the second VM without isolating the network and that caused all kinds of weird. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to go that way if only because if the dedicated hardware fails, the ability to slide that VM back onto my existing vHost and just turn it back on seems highly appealing to me. So I'm, I'm going to kick that around. The other thing I'm kicking around, so the way that we typically interact with the home automation stuff is through these wall controllers. And obviously my hack gets me you know, through right now, but obvi- it's not going to be the permanent solution. I've got to figure something else out. So what I'm largely looking for, I looked, I couldn't find anything by way of 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 actual just scene controllers they have buttons that will toggle something but i would need like 15 of them at any one given place um so what i'm looking at is potentially building something out of small uh touchscreen lcd so i ordered a five inch low resolution touchscreen lcd and i built some dashboards for them and just kind of double side taped them up to the wall so i could see how they would work and i have to be honest with you i'm very impressed even at a low resolution, you don't need much to draw some buttons. So I think these things are like 800 by 480. My thought is a five inch touchscreen, build a nice, you know, little enclosure and then cut them into the wall. And then behind it, what would I drive it with? I could use a Raspberry Pi. I could use centralized nooks and run HDMI balance up to all of the and, and USB balance up to all of the wall station locations. So all the nooks are down in the in the network operation center or i could run put pies and then use like a raspberry pi hat poe hat to power them so i'm interested in your home automation setups what are you using for hasio what have you found works well what are things that you might seek to avoid and then i'll continue to keep you up to date on my journey as it as it progresses finally i'm adding accent leds on the wall now these have a decidedly lower spousal approval factor from the standpoint of reliability than the regular lights do. If the regular lights don't work, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a breaking thing and, and, and I'm in trouble, but I'm, I probably have some more leeway when it comes to the colored accent lights. So what's my best option to control these accent lights? 
my thought thinking at this point is to use a Shelly, Steve, and then they have the hardwired version. So if I had that and I, they seem to have one that drives, you know, different colored LEDs and that makes it very exposable to home assistant and yet still seems like I would be hitting those reliability marks. It depends on what protocol you want to go with. Obviously, the Shelly is going to go over Wi-Fi. I have a bunch of mine kicking around throughout the house that have Zigbee because they're not really that important and it gets them off the Wi-Fi range. So, okay. Um, but they I also have hardwired have gone, chilies, don't they? They do. Um, the, the ones that I have, what they specifically mimic what looks like a normal um, LED controller. So like if you just go out to Best Buy or wherever, get an LED strip, they'll come mm-hmm. with a little controller that has a little button on it. And, you know, maybe they're the size of a double A batteries yes, that sort yes, of thing yes i'm familiar so those you can get with two devices in them and flash them with tasmoda which i've done i have several of those or you can get zigbee versions of those which i also have of those the shelly ones are in their traditional format that little i don't know oreo style format so i guess pick your poison i've come to really like the shellys after doing my chicken coop um, I started looking for their stuff first for some of my projects because yeah. I really like the web interface and the integration with Home Assistant and not needing to need an app and all of the other things that I, I've I've had Shelly's for quite a long time, but I have always flashed them to Tasmoda before now. And this time uh, I furnished the chicken coop, which has, I want to say, a half a dozen Shelly's in it, and I left them all. So. That's interesting to hear. So Shelly is at the top of my list. I understand they have a, a like an Ethernet hardwired version, so I'm interested in kind of playing with that, and that would potentially get me off of the off of the Wi-Fi. It's one of my other questions, and I'm interested on your thoughts at live at com. Tasmoto ESP Home, what are the pros and cons? What do you like? Why did you go that route? What did you use in your DIY project? Are you using ESP32s, ESP8266s, or something like the RP2040? Let me know at live at AskNoahShow.com. Professional video under Linux. There aren't a lot of people doing it. Certainly not many people to the class that our next guest does it. But Michael Pendleton returns to the program. Welcome back, sir. Thank you for having me, Noah. Thanks for taking the time. So, I, I, you know, last time we every question we asked or everything we got into, we said, oh, man, that that alone, if we expanded that could be its own episode or its own thing. So I just kind of wanted to dig into some of the specifics on professional video under Linux. So my first question to you, sir, if you were to start over with caution glass, if you had the ability to wipe the, the slate clean or God forbid everything burns down in a catastrophic fire, what would you do differently? What were the lessons that you learned after doing it the first time that you'd go back and say, I'm building a studio all on Linux, but now I get to use Hindsight 2020? Honestly, I've been using Linux for about 10 years now, and luckily I was able to get into this with not being very green uh, when it comes to using Linux for video production. Um, I've edited tons of commercials on Linux before I even uh, got to start the company. Thank you, uh, COVID lockdown. <laughs> um, but 
honestly, there's not a whole lot of things that I really would change uh, on the technology side. Really, the biggest changes would definitely be on my approach to a lot of things, dealing with clients and, and things like that. You definitely learn when owning a business. And the biggest thing on that front would, of course, be definitely be uh, getting an accountant a lot sooner because <laughs> I am not a money guy and it honestly makes me sick. Uh, um, but But no, honestly, from the start, the technology has done uh, a fantastic job and it's been one of the one of the easiest things when it comes to running this company really so what distro did you end up standardizing on so uh, up until a couple months ago and I'll get into that in a second um, it was all Kubuntu uh, I'm definitely a KDE guy I do enjoy GNOME uh, from time to time but every time I'm on GNOME for a little while uh, I start realizing how much I want to go back to KDE. <laughs> uh, and the reason why a couple months ago I, on my personal uh, workstation, uh, I am now on Pop! OS. And I, that's because I went and got myself a Thilio Mira. And beautiful machine. I love it. And I've been using Kubuntu for so long for, on every single machine. I was like, let me give Pop! OS a shot. And honestly, I think I'm about two and a half, three months in on it, and I'm loving it. It's still very gnome, uh, but I, I think I might just stay with it for a little while longer. But everybody else uh, that works with the company, um, they're on Kubuntu machines. You primarily focus on doing post-video production. That is to say, you film everything, then you go back, you take it in the studio, you edit it, you add all of your things. If you were to do live video, and I think you do some of that, if you were to do live video and you were picking out a system or you were going, you were primarily basing your business off of streaming, how would you capture the video? What kind of tools would you choose from the camera to the capture interface to the software? Yeah, yeah. We have done some live video, uh, definitely to Facebook. We've also streamed to uh, local cable companies uh, for local cable distribution and stuff like that. And... What we've done uh, that's worked really well is A10 Mini. Um, the A10 Mini interfaces flawlessly with Linux. I think I had mentioned last time that I had taken my A10 Mini and actually done a Zoom call on it you know, with a cinema camera, which is just hilarious. But it works really, really well on Linux. So I definitely recommend at least giving the A10 Mini a try. When it feeds into uh, your computer, it basically sees it like it's a webcam. And so you're able to put that into OBS uh, flawlessly. It, it's just fantastic. Now, the thing, uh, you had brought up a great point last time, Noah, that when you're switching cameras and you've got graphic overlays or something like that, uh, it's not going to switch with the camera. You don't have any kind of, any of that kind of control because it's just a single uh, linear video feed. So if you're switching angles and you want to keep those graphics changing, you're probably going to want to do that internal capture like we had talked about before. Um, and that's actually something I'm looking at uh, because there's definitely some flaws to the A10 Mini uh, solution uh, to include that and several others. But I am uh, currently pricing out and still looking at the opportunity of building a dedicated tower just purely for video switching. And I am uh, definitely looking at going with decklink cards into the cam uh, into the computer. Uh, doing some SDI cards and then doing like one or two HDMI cards uh, for safety. Uh, but yeah, so I would definitely build a machine using decklink cards. Uh, but for cameras, that's a hard one because if you are going with SDI, which I highly recommend if you're doing anything outdoors, I have dealt with trying to run HDMI cables outdoors and you run into all kinds of interference. You just lose your video signal mm -hmm. and it's a nightmare. 
So yeah, if you can go SDI, definitely do that. But the issue you're going to run into there is you're going to have to definitely spend some money on a camera before you can get SDI. Um, you're talking like three, four, five thousand dollars. You know, kind of on the low end for cameras that properly carry SDI. Cameras that I would want to have on camera or, or on on stream. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because you can get some lower end camcorders, things like that, that have SDI outputs, and they can do okay, but they're not going to have that high end broadcast feeling to them. They're going to feel a little bit more like that, you know, static camera that you might have at, you know, church or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so if you're really trying to step up the game and do better video, what I would do is get one of those Blackmagic HDMI to SDI converters. And those can even run off of like battery packs if they even require uh, power at all, but you can power them off of uh, USB type C. And then like we've got Blackmagic Pocket Cinema cameras. And so all you gotta do is then convert that uh, to SDI and then run that into your switcher. So getting into a little bit of the tooling, I know that for example, a bunch of the Adobe suite is kind of popular with creative professionals. I've saw a bunch of that where especially at IMAX, they'd have a Mac in the corner, even though we were a full Linux shop. What do you do for your tooling? Like, have you replaced the Adobe stuff like Illustrator? Yeah, I've, honestly, that is one of my favorite things to talk about. This is a real passion for me because, you know, like you said, there's not a whole lot of people using Linux in the professional video space. Um, well, when you go up to the Hollywood level and everything, as you know very well, Steve, <laughs> they're, they're using Linux everywhere. Um, but everybody looks at more of the small shops, the um, content creation world and all that kind of stuff. They're mostly looking at Mac and Windows. And so it's a real passion for me when it comes to this. And every single time I have this conversation, everybody's talking Adobe, Adobe, Adobe. And everybody comes out of college and they're thinking they have to use Adobe and everything like that. And I've built my pipeline since I was 11, 12 years old, not using anything Adobe. And Illustrator is an interesting one because a few years ago, it was a lot harder. But I do use Inkscape and I use it for everything vector-based and it is a phenomenal tool. And especially within the last five to six years, it can easily, even if you're one of those guys who's used Illustrator forever, I argue that, that Inkscape has now gotten to the point that uh, it could easily replace Illustrator for anybody. and. Uh, it, it even uses, uh, so uh, Illustrator uses PDF essentially for its file format. So .ai files are essentially like a PDF. I know this because I used to have to, uh, when I received a .ai file from a client or from a stock website or something, I used to have to change the file extension from .ai to .pdf and it would open up an Inkscape. But they've gotten Inkscape to the point now where I literally just double click on the .ai file and it opens flawlessly every time. And I have worked with uh, people using Adobe left and right, and I'm using all of my tools, they're using their tools, and honestly, there's been almost no issues. So we do all of our graphic design in Inkscape. And so all of our logos, all the stuff that we do for our website and our hosting, and all of it is done in Inkscape. And like you, had similar experiences to where the rest of the industry says, well, we're going to use Adobe. Uh, we just, we demand that stuff. Like for example, when we have, you know, deliverables, we'll tell them because we're the customer in that scenario. Hey, we demand an SVG and then they'll just provide it. But largely, cause I, I, I've not really seen a whole lot of, uh, a lot of problems. Okay. So here's kind of some rapid fire stuff, but this helps people. If somebody's out there and they're thinking to themselves, I want to get into video streaming. I want to do this. 
and but I don't know where to start. What would you say is the best camera for somebody under 500 bucks? So if you're looking at the under $500 mark, all day, every day, go used. I mean, there's no real need to, um, if, if you're within that kind of a price range, I would not recommend you go for a new camera. You could do something like the, you know, Canon M50, you know, that's, you know, for a new camera, that's still $600. And that, that is with a lens, but mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to do something like what a Sony a6400 could do for you, which you can get used all day long for under $500, sometimes even with a lens. So I would definitely recommend that you check out like the Sony a6400 um, or anything else that's used underneath that $500 mark. Because when you're talking about getting into 4K mirrorless cameras, um, the used market is just saturated with some great ones now. You know, the camera industry is interesting because back in about 2014 to 2016, 2017, as you're seeing that transition, especially from 1080p to 4K, it was an exciting time for cameras. New cameras are coming out constantly, and you constantly had reasons to upgrade. But honestly, within the last four to five years, I have not seen any reasons, any major reasons, to be upgrading cameras. It's gotten to the point now where, you know, anything that you shoot on today is probably going to look about as good as something you could have bought seven or eight years ago. So if you're looking under $500, absolutely buy used. And the Sony A6400 right now is probably the best option for that. Um, okay, so we've got a $500 camera. I like the idea of going used. I don't want to take the hit for purchasing something. So that makes all the sense in the world to me. How about if I expand it out to $1,000 and let's keep used in the realm of possibilities. Because I get going in you know, on extra $500 and when we're talking about cameras, I mean, that's a lens in most cases. Oh, it totally is. And if you're if you're upping your budget to about thousand bucks, yeah, still going used would be good. And that's when you're starting to get getting into the territory of something fantastic like the Pocket uh, 4K, the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 4K. Way too long of a name, but uh, it's a fantastic camera. Shoots B-RAW internally. You're talking 4K at 60 frames per second. Uh, it's just a phenomenal camera, and you and it honestly has been used on professional Hollywood sets. Uh, all over the place and it, it just really holds up and if you're if you're looking at the thousand dollar mark you can easily pick one of those up used for about eight hundred dollars or so uh, and then you've got a little bit of budget left over for a lens or two and it's fantastic because it has the MFT mount uh, which means that you're you have a really short flange distance which means that you can adapt any lens from EF to FD uh, I love shooting on like old cinema glass or sorry old uh, photography glass from like the 1980s so you can just adapt almost any lens to that camera and you can get some really fantastic images from it. Is there a way to interpret that raw data under Linux, like the, the, the B-RAW that it shoots? So Blackmagic, uh, it's kind of funny. So Blackmagic has fantastic Linux support, and yet at the same time, they really don't. Um, it seems like they support Linux as much as they are um, needing to. Uh, so like the Sintel uh, film scanner has uh, native Linux support. Um, you know, DaVinci Resolve obviously works fantastic on Linux. Um, and that also means that B-RAW works fantastic on Linux, uh, or Blackmagic RAW. And the Blackmagic RAW player is uh, native on Linux, and it, you can play your video files just fine for preview and playback. And then once you get inside of uh, 
DaVinci Resolve, it works fantastic. Um, but also if you're on Lightworks, Lightworks was actually the first uh, third-party video editor to integrate B-RAW support. So uh, you were getting Blender, uh, sorry, Blackmagic RAW support under Linux um, really early on. And uh, yeah, both have done really well. I've played with Lightworks a good bit since they introduced that function. Um, and it does really, really well. Now I want to take you up to 10000 If I had $10,000 to spend on a camera, I'm departing the budget cameras. And I think even in with, especially if we include used, now I should be able to get myself into a proper cinema camera. Maybe it's just an older proper cinema camera. I mean, again, we all have to understand, you know, the ca- cinema, new cinema cameras are starting at like, I mean, it could be forty, fifty thousand dollars and that's just the body. So with a budget of $10,000, what would you buy? Well, what if I told you, Noah, that you could actually get a fantastic cinema camera for under $6,000? This is sounding better and better. Brand new. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and that would be the Blackmagic Design Ursa Mini Pro 4.6K G2. And that is some Microsoft-level naming right there. But <laughs> you can get that camera for $6,000, brand spanking new, and that leaves you $4,000 of wiggle room for some glass, uh, rigging accessories, tripods, whatever you want to do. And honestly, I probably would buy that camera brand new. It's such an investment that uh, getting it brand new would kind of be a nice peace of mind. Um, but any of the Ursa Minis, even if you're going for something older than the G2, those are fantastic cameras. Uh, and I played with the original Ursa quite a bit. I, I've I've had one for a little while, um, and it's a great camera, but the original Ursa, do keep in mind, if you're going to go used, the original Ursa Mini does not allow Blackmagic RAW uh, recording because it was made before they even had it. And even through firmware updates and everything, they were not able to get Blackmagic RAW onto that camera. So if you okay. want Blackmagic RAW, you're going to have to go a little bit newer than that. But yeah, the, the Ursa Mini cameras are fantastic. But the G2 does support that. It does. And so does a couple of a uh, couple older versions of the Ursa Mini. But that original Ursa Mini, you're, you're out of luck. So we've talked about a bunch of the positive things. I was having a conversation with my boss mm, just a couple of days ago because, you know, you go through the training or you hear the stuff from the people that are really excited about the technology. You think that's great. But what aren't they telling me, especially Mm. because like I'm going through this one training and I'm like, this is fantastic. Why aren't people using this? And that got me thinking, well, why aren't people using this? I want a course of of why not to use this. So when it comes to you, what are some of the things that that don't work well under Linux? Like what have been some of the troubles that you've had? Yeah, it's kind of a funny subject because I don't feel like the troubles are really the technology itself. And I'm going to sound like I'm running a 501c3 here or something like that, but it's really more uh, awareness. You know, there's a lot of things that people expect to work the, you know, the Adobe way or the way that it works on their Mac or their Windows machine or something like that. And a lot of times, if you know how it works, it's just as easy on Linux. You just have to know that that's the way you do it. And there are also other things like, for instance, I've heard a lot of different horror stories about, you know, DaVinci Resolve uh, for people running even the same distro as me. And it's kind of baffling. You know, you don't understand how somebody can be running almost the same exact setup and they're using DaVinci Resolve and they're running into this issue. Um, And I think that, you know, some of those issues could just come down to they've never used it before. They've never installed it before. But, you know, I I do remember, uh, you know, I'll just say this. It is a fantastic time to be a Linux creative. 
I remember when I first started using Linux, I still had to install some Adobe package in order to watch YouTube, <laughs> you know, and yeah. that was a horrible time. And there was a lot of like, okay, Blackmagic uh, on DaVinci Resolve, you could not play back audio in DaVinci Resolve uh, seven years ago, I think, um, without a Decklink card. You had to have Decklink output in order to have audio inside of DaVinci Resolve on Linux. But in version 15, they added native Linux uh, audio output. And that's when it was really capable of being a, a world-class platform for video production. Um, and so, yeah, honestly, these days, it's gotten easier and easier and easier. Um, you don't have to worry as much about packages being available for one distro and not another distro anymore. Um, some of the things that I would say that still need a lot of growth is, for instance, plugins. Plugins um, can be a problem. We talked about this last time. Uh, there's, you know, the OFX standard, uh, OpenFX plugin standard, and it works flawlessly in DaVinci Resolve. However, the installer application is probably made only for Mac or only for Windows. And so you have the plugins that are capable of working on Linux, but they aren't capable of working on Linux just because they want to have this third-party or th uh, intermediary piece of software that will actually install it to the system instead of just giving you the OFX files. So it's like some of those things are very frustrating and they don't really work very well under Linux. Um, and this is slightly on topic and slightly off topic, but I want to say it on air so that hopefully somebody who works on the Flatpak team um, can listen to this. Speaking of plugins, there are a lot of plugins like GIMP, for instance, like Resynthesizer and Gmic and stuff like that, but you can't find them in a search on FlatHub. The only way that you can really find them is by going to the terminal and doing, you know, Flatpak search uh, GIMP, and then you get the list of all the plugins. So I'd really love to see Flatpak um, improve the way that you find plugins for a lot of these applications because there are definitely many of them out there um and if if people knew for instance like the heel selection option uh it's a very specific tool but it the heel selection option is almost like content aware fill on photoshop and it's a total time saver but if you didn't know that that plugin even existed um then it's there but i would definitely say the biggest things that don't work well under linux is not knowing how to use it and that's why I kind of, you know, have such a, a, a passion for this is it's like, it's such a good platform. It's so stable. I have not had to deal with PSODs. I've not had to deal with Candy Crush being installed against my will. <laughs> you know, I, I have not had to deal with so many things and it's been such a solid, stable platform. I've got my mom running Linux and she's a great lady, but she is not a tech person in the slightest and you know i've even been able to get her to use uh she uses uh, an embroidery machine um that uses a very specific brother um software that's only available on windows i've got that running under wine and she uses it on her fedora laptop all the time and it's fantastic for her you know and so there and it wasn't hard to set up either so i think that if people are just at least a little open-minded and if they're dual booting right now with linux and windows i was doing that for a little while about a year or so um, but if you're dual booting with Linux and Windows, just know that these tools are pretty much already there and they're ready to be used. If you're willing to work around the problems, are there ways to actually manually copy? So, for example, in your example, can you install the plugins on a Mac or on a Windows PC and then copy the OFX files over to a Linux box and then use them? That is a great idea. I haven't even thought of that. <laughs> um, I, I kind of want to give that a shot. Uh, uh, some of the stuff that I was trying to was probably like 
I don't know, four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was such a headache that I didn't even continue to try it after that. So I'd be curious to try it again. The Ignite plugins from uh, FX Home specifically, they're free and they're out there. Um, and I'd be kind of curious to try that under Wine again and just see if I can at least get an extraction onto the local system. But well, I don't have a Windows machine anywhere near me, so I'd have to give that a shot. <laughs> well, so that, that's where my question comes in. So you, you said, you know, it, it, you know, it works with... It works with um, it works with DaVinci Resolve, so it, it it'll work under Linux. But so if and my mind immediately goes to, well, how do we know it works under Linux if you if the installer doesn't work? But if you could maybe manually copy those files, if we don't think there's anything else required other than DaVinci Resolve in these OSX OFX files, that seems like that could be a potential solution. But maybe there's licensing or activation or something along those lines too, huh? Well, that is the number one reason that I've seen that it doesn't work, it, at least from my testing. I've, I've done some extensive testing, and it pretty much all comes down to they're trying to keep track of how many people are using the software if it's free, um, or they feel like they have to have this third-party installer because they're also trying to make it for people who aren't tech people. My, my last question is, what would you do when you're looking for a laptop? What specs do you look for for doing video editing and production? Yeah, so my current machine is an Asus Toughbook, and I actually, this is kind of like, you know, I think last time you had asked, uh, basically, what what hardware would you stay away, or, or do are you ever concerned about buying certain hardware mm-hmm. when using Linux? And the answer is basically no. I always just say, you know, YOLO, we'll figure it out. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this laptop I bought actually has NVIDIA Optimus. It's just an Asus uh tough uh, gaming laptop with a GTX uh, 3050 Ti and an AMD Ryzen CPU. And I would say the minimum is definitely just get yourself a dedicated GPU. That's really what you got to do. Micah Pendleton, I appreciate the time. As always, we'll get you back in the program soon. Would love to. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Steve. Music in my ears means we're out of time. I thank you for joining us. We record the show on Tuesdays. You can join us live at 6 p.m., it's streamed at asknoahshow.com. You can follow us on Twitter, on X. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens, the show at Ask Noah Show. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.